Good morning. You may be seated. Hi, everybody. A friend of mine in Europe sent me a very intriguing story. It's story time. We haven't done story time in a while. You ready for story time? Story time. All right. Here's the story. Ready? My friend wrote, and he said this. He said, Wayne, our family had just enjoyed a wonderful month-long visit from Opa, the grandpa the kids never get to see my dad. It was a great visit, especially for my two sons. These boys are of the perfect age to enjoy their granddad, four and six years old, and they had really loved playing with their father's father. Opa told them stories. He took them fishing, hunting fireflies in the woods, bought them too much candy. It had been a glorious month of male bonding. But now the month had sped by, and it was time for Opa to go home. So we ferried Opa down to catch the train, and as we waited, the boys became, as we waited, the boys became like two very sad little puppies. They sat and sniffled while everyone waited for the train. Finally, time came for their grandfather to depart, and my two boys sat crying on a bench on the platform while I walked my dad to his train. As Opa's train pulled out, the boys turned toward each other, and I was very moved. I was sure my sons were about to hug, to find solace in each other. But that's exactly when the younger one looked up, wiped his eyes, and punched his older brother right in the arm. My older son didn't look at all surprised. He just reached across and smacked his little brother in the head. Mom and I had to run over to keep them from fighting all over the platform, and I swear that I saw my father laughing at me as the train pulled away. Close quote. That story illustrates quite well what trials and pains do to human beings. As a pastor friend of mine likes to say, hurting people hurt people. Oh, I know, I know. Pastors are supposed to tell sweet stories about how we draw together and comfort each other in our pain. But God says that, that, that that's not really how we are. The truth is that hitting each other while we cry is much more natural. I love you too much to lie to you, and quite frankly, trials bring out the opposite of brotherly love in the typical natural human. Knowing that, Peter especially addresses this. He specifically addresses how we should respond to each other when we are under pressure, when we are in pain. Open your Bible, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, right after James in your New Testament, just before 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and you're going to see through Peter, God relates honest realistic, transformative information. Go to 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Here in 1 Peter 1, 22, Peter describes what should be. This is what should be. By the way, that's the headline in our notes. Uh, you'll see that headline, what should be. This is the ideal. We are expected, first of all, to obey truth. Hupakoe uh, is the term he chooses for obedience. Hupakoe means, this is so cool, obedience by listening carefully. Truth in this passage is aletheia. Aletheia is life-changing truth. This is why my old friend Chris Legg named his uh, Tyler, Texas Counseling Center as aletheia. It's meant to be a place where one can listen carefully to truth. Look, look at these Greek words. These terms declare what should be, that we obey God because we listen carefully to life-changing truth. Do you know of anything in this particular age that we need more than to listen carefully to truth? I, I can't think of anything. 
Possibly no one in our 21st century has thought about this more than Rod Dreher. It's a theme that runs through every one of his books. Let me give you just a few examples. From his book, How Dante Can Save Your Life, Dreher says it's better to choose to know the painful truth than to settle on a comforting lie. Resolve to look for and accept the truth no matter how much it hurts. Nothing built on lies lasts, close quote. Uh, in his book, The Benedict Option, he says, Christians often talk about reaching the culture without realizing that they have been co-opted by the very secular culture they wish to evangelize. Our therapeutic culture says that what I want is the highest calling. Nothing matters more than my felt needs. But God says, live differently. Do, do, you, want, do you want to keep from being co-opted by the world? If you do, then you must listen carefully to life-changing truth and then live by that truth. Here's the ideal. Here's what should be. We are expected to live by truth and we're to love our fellow believers. Once again, Peter uses two Greek words in conjunction to produce something very special. Philadelphia is brotherly affection. I really like how the Urban Bible translates this. Love for your homies is how it translates that. That's precisely right. Now, Peter ties that directly to agapao. Agapao is the greatest of all love. It is unconditional, self-sacrificial, other-centered affection. Philadelphia is to be expressed in agape. Both terms are used here. In fact, they, they build in the sentence. Philadelphia affection is sincere and is expressed in constancy of self-sacrificial love. Since dinosaurs roamed the earth back in 2008, uh, Lori Pollock uh, Kindlin has been running a blog, fascinating blog. And one time, not too long ago, she asked a bunch of children who read her blog to tell her what they think love is. Uh, here are some of my favorite of the answers that she received. Uh, Rebecca, age eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Chrissy, age five, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> Self-sacrificial. Uh, Terry, age four, is absolutely brilliant. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. And Bobby, age seven, good observer here. Bobby says, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Uh, Nika, age six, is obviously going to be a pastor, says if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. And since Nika is six, we won't say that it should be whom. Um, <clears throat> Tommy, age nine, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. <laughs> Marianne, age four, nails it. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Uh, Lauren, age six, I know my sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> and Jessica, age nine, this is spot on. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. That's not bad. A few of those get close to Peter's big idea about love among Christians. For us, Philadelphia flows directly into agapao. And as we noted, our affection is to be sincere. Possibly the most important word in verse 22 is sincere. This is so cool in the Greek. Uh, anipokritos is a compound word like so many in Greek. It's, it's uh, without, no, plus the word for hypocrisy. Think about that. No hypocrisy. That means that in Christian expression, there is never to be any, bless her heart. That's, that's for potent, right? No, no fake tears. 
No fake hugs. That's hypocrisy. We are to be anipokritos, sincere lovers. Again, Dreher addresses this so pithily. Look what he said in his book, Live Not By Lies. Soft totalitarianism seduces those, even Christians, who have lost the capacity to love enduringly. They think they love, but they merely desire. They think they follow Jesus, but in fact, they merely admire Him. Each of us thinks we won't be like that. But if we have accepted the lie of our therapeutic culture, which tells us that our personal happiness is the greatest good of all, then we will surrender at the first sign of trouble, close quote. He is spot on. The number one cause of hypocritical affection is that I don't think I have room for your problems. I have to look out for myself. My happiness is top priority, not agape love for you. And that, my friends, is why so many Christian gatherings reek of hypocritos. One last word to understand. I think this one's important before we leave verse 22. Constantly. This love should be expressed constantly, says my text. Uh, Ektenos is the Greek word. Ektenos means fervently and constantly. It's, It's a fascinating word where it's it's really not possible in our language to put it in one term. So you've got to combine two. It's, it's that rare scenario where something is both continuous and powerful. It, 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 it's, it's something that we struggle with very, very much. If something continues, it tends to lose power as it goes along. This is something that does not. Two of my favorite Greek language experts put it this way. Ekteneia, talking about all the words in this group in the New Testament, is intensity without negligence or failing whether in prayer or brotherly love. That's the two areas this is used. One of the greatest examples of ectinos can be found in the life of this man, William Gorgas, Dr. William Gorgas. Wherever yellow fever and malaria have been controlled, people should praise God for Dr. Gorgas. How many of you have ever heard of William Gorgas before? You, you know anything about him? Okay, very few. The very first biography I ever read as a little kid was about him, and I've never gotten over it. You have an assignment. You should get to know this guy. Let me tell you about him. Against incredible opposition, he managed to eliminate yellow fever in Havana, Cuba. Uh, What he did was he proved that the Stegomia fasciata mosquito, that this was the carrier of yellow fever and the only carrier of yellow fever. Um, If it hadn't been for Gorgas, if it hadn't been for President Roosevelt who backed him, the Panama Canal, for example, would never have been built. Do, Do you know what motivated Gorgas to his Herculean efforts against these horrible diseases. You know what motivated him? Love. As a believer in Jesus Christ, Gorgas loved his fellow humans. David McCullough wrote a book about the Panama Canal, and he had this to say about about Dr. Gorgas. Look what he says. A devout Christian, the doctor would not give up. His tact, his sensitivity to the feelings of others were unfailing. An American engineer would remember him as a grand, quiet, lovable man. Dr. Victor Heiser, a young American physician who was passing through Panama en route to the Philippines, saw Gorgas stopped in the street by a beggar. Now, Heiser describes what he saw. He, Gorgas, bowed to the man, shook his hand, even inquired for his name, and then gave the only coin he had. But it was all done so naturally, with such dignity, that the man walked away very pleased. That, my friends, is Peter's depiction of what should be sincere affection that is expressed to fellow believers in Jesus, every one of whom is obedient to God's truth. That's what should be, verse 22. But while not lowering that bar, Peter also understands that we need help getting over it. 
You see, what should be doesn't come naturally to us. Peter is firmly grounded in the real messy world where you and I live, and so he next describes what naturally is. And that's the headline, by the way, on the right side of your notes. You'll see that, what is. The reality is we live trying lives. It's pointed out at the very beginning of the letter. Uh, You're in chapter 1 still. Go up to verse 6. Verse 6 that we read a few days ago. You rejoice in this. He's talking about salvation. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. We live trying lives in a world of trials, period. Anyone who says differently is selling something, okay? This is the mindset. Understanding this is what allowed Dr. Gorgas to conquer yellow fever. Everybody else who tried to fight those diseases were overwhelmed by the mud, by the rain, by the jungle, by the disease, the filth of tropical work. But William Gorgas expected nothing less. Do you know what he did? This man spent hours and hours and hours, days and days and days, weeks and weeks and weeks, following the flight paths of thousands of mosquitoes. He spent untold hours watching the, the matching, uh, the, the, the way that the larvae would work inside water and, and matching the different larvae to the different breeds of mosquitoes. Hours of his life going house to house to house, fumigating and killing mosquitoes. It was awful, hard work. But as a devout believer in Jesus, as a daily reader of Scripture, William Gorgas expected nothing less. What, what, are, what are your expectations? As you leave here today, what are your expectations? Do you feel entitled to a life that is free from, from grief and trials? Do you feel like that's what you should have? If so, I can refer you to any number of prosperity gospel churches that will tickle your ears about wealth and ease. As for this church, all we can do is quote Peter to encourage you. There is rejoicing. This is not the end for those who are saved. We have an amazing birthright. But do not kid yourself. This side of heaven, life is a muddy jungle where we suffer grief in various trials. Period. And those who know that can get excited about doing the hard work that is necessary. All God's people said, this is where we start. What is, is here in a trying life where the flesh battles the word. Go back down to verse 23 now. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For, a quote here from Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. The quote there is Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, in Isaiah, there's this fascinating contrast in chapter 40. The person who stands on God's word soars in Isaiah 40, but the one who who waits on self does not. In fact, he He moves ever and ever closer to the ground. It's really brilliant writing. Look look at the memorable contrast. Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 7. Indeed, the people are grass. Grass. Where does grass grow? Down the ground, right? We're close to the ground. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Verse 8, verse 30. Youths become faint and weary. Young men stumble and fall. Where do they fall? Down on the ground. You You see the image that Isaiah is pounding in here? It goes on and on through chapter 40. You're going to be stuck in the jungle mud. If you rely on yourself, on your flesh, this is what the flesh is. But here's the contrast. Look at this, verse 8. But the word of our God remains forever. See, the Lord comes with strength. Those who trust the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar. Is that close to the ground? 
Now they soar on wings like eagles. Say it with me, verse 31, all together. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Peter quotes that passage on purpose. He's building on Isaiah's contrast between the flesh, the the innate broken power of humanity, and the Word of God. So look how Peter uses that contrast. He says, you're born again. Uh, By the way, that's words he borrowed from Jesus, Jesus' great image of new life through faith in Messiah. And, and, And Peter says this new life is not anything like your perishable fleshly life that you inherited from Adam. Jesus, the living eternal Word of God, is your spark. Your spiritual DNA is drawn from God the Son. Now, until all is made new, there's going to be a battle every day in the life of every Christian. You're going to find yourself tempted regularly to rely on the flesh, to operate close to the ground, to be in your own strength. This is especially true in times of pressure and pain. But instead of hitting your brother... You can trust in the eternal triumphant Word of God. You can soar spiritually, renewing your strength in God's grace. Amen? Suppose tonight during the the Cowboy game tonight, you're, you're watching the Cowboys game. You need quiet to focus because if you don't watch well, they may not win, right? And your children decide to imitate two European brothers fighting on a train platform, noisy in the living room, making all this noise. What do you do? What do you do? you got two choices. You can yell. You can, it actually works, at least for a short time. It, anger gets results. Just ask the legion of protesters in America, right? Anger gets results, at least in the short term. You can do that. You can rely on the flesh that you have seen modeled so many times. You can tap into your inner desire for peace and quiet by demanding it, right? Or you can parent by grace. By the way, parenting by grace, you still deal out appropriate punishments. You still chastise as necessary because that's love. But you do it consciously trusting God. You parent as one who knows himself as a child of God, who appreciates how God deals with you. You love constantly, fervently, knowing the care and development of your children is more important than your personal football happiness, right? By the way, if you think this is tough now, you should have lived before we had possible TV. Okay. <laughs> it is relying upon the imperishable Word of God, the good news of Jesus that gets us from what is to what should be. But it's not easy. After all, interpersonal sins rule in our lives, and, and they make this fleshly reaction so <laughs> tempting. It's a, very, it's a very logical transition here. So this is what is, and, and you, you want to know how easy it is to live close to the ground? Go to chapter 2, uh, or the end of 25 through chap- the rest of our text. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and all slander. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation, quote here from Psalm 34, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Malice, deceit, hypocrisies, envy, slander, yuck. Malice in English means, it means abject hatred. It means desire for harm. But, but in the Greek, the term is much more nuanced. Kakia is a, it's a really old word. Okay, Homer used kakia often. This is really cool. Homer used kakia in contrast to agathos. Agathos is the word for moral excellence. Homer, 
Every time I can find that he used kakia, he used it as a contrast to show the absence of agathos, okay? It's more than just hatred. Kakia is the absence of moral excellence. This is far more convicting than malice in English. Look, if I look in my soul, I hopefully find relatively few times that I have been absolutely malicious, right? The English word malice. Very few times. There are some where I have actually really wanted evil for someone. So I read malice and I mutter, well, <laughs> thank goodness I'm not like that, right? But, but Peter, like everyone who read and wrote in Greek, Peter lived in a world that was steeped in Homer's terms, Homer's images. And Peter wants me to see how my sins My sins against others keep me from agape love. In fact, agape is to Peter as agathos is to Homer. Its absence makes for kakia. So I need to ask a different question of my soul. Not am I malicious. I need to instead research all the ways that I operate without agape, without self-sacrificial love, without agathos, without moral excellence. So anybody here, anybody here ever act with less than unconditional self-sacrificial love. If, if, if you have ever shown less than agape toward another Christian, if you've ever shown less than moral excellence, agathos, toward a brother in Christ, would you please raise your hand? Raise your hand. Yeah, see, all those hands, thank you, they mean that we, we are guilty of kakia. Don't just gloss over malice. Deceit, we understand all too well. We'll talk about it more in a moment. We already discussed hypocrisy. Envy is the next thing on God's list here. Envy is resentment toward another person's success or another person's possessions. Um, For an illustration, we have many of you that study with us around the world, our international audience. If you want to understand envy, think about how the Russian government sees the state of Georgia. Okay, that's envy. For you who are Americans, let's stick with Georgia. Think about fans of the Georgia Bulldog football team and imagine how they feel about Alabama. That, that's envy, okay? This is what is. All these interpersonal sins weigh us down and they keep us from soaring into what should be. Envy, deceit, malice, hypocrisy, and slander. Regarding slander, uh, a few years ago I received this letter. Here, here's a great example. Got a letter a few years ago from a lady um, in the church. She wrote and said, Pastor Wayne, we met this Christian couple in our town, and we started getting together for play dates and such. Anyway, I was telling her how much we love Pastor Wayne, how Frisco Bible Church feels like home, how right on your sermons are, etc. But then she started saying bad things about you. At first, I was a little shocked, but then as the week stretched on, I started getting really mad. The last straw was the day I was at her house, and she asked me to be honest about something. I said, okay. She said, do you really think Pastor Wayne is ever Holy Spirit-led? I instantly said, yes. She said, rolling her eyes, I don't think so. That's slander, okay? How do you respond to slander? By the way, if you haven't been slandered, you probably should listen more. Um, (laughs) If you want to know what slander is, just run for office. You will find out. Here's what I wrote this lady back, and I really recommend that you respond to slander this way. I wrote the lady back and I said, wonderfully, I have the Lord. I don't need any human to defend me. I just feel deeply saddened that a fellow Christian could be so utterly dismissive and ugly toward a brother. Of course, I have felt that same sorrow in my own soul as God has convicted me over how I have been ugly and dismissive toward brethren myself. May the Spirit protect our dear sister as he chastises her for such sin. He will do so, as promised. 
even as he makes completely clear that our only response is to what, everybody? Forgive. And that takes us to the question that you're asking in your, uh, in your OPA imitation, of course. How can we move from what is to what should be? How practically can we get over the bar? Thank you for asking, Opa. Great question. First, I've got five things for you to do. First, purify your own soul. Go, go back to the beginning, verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth. Purify yourself. Stop clanging around, pointing out the, the splinters in other people's eyes. Get the log from your own eye first. James wrote very powerfully about this. I'd like Read with me. Uh, you join me on the underlying parts of James chapter 4, uh, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, what is what should be. Be miserable and mourn and weep. By the way, don't misunderstand, James. It, James has a very positive outlook on life. He, he's not talking about being miserable all the time. He's not calling for you to be droopy every day. He's saying that when you are dealing with your sin, mortify it. Call it what it is. It's sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Thank you. James covers all our enemies here, the world, the flesh, and the devil. By drawing near to God, we conquer all three. When we mortify sin, when we mourn our flesh and stop relying on it, when we resist the devil, when we humbly turn only to God for power, we are exalted in Him. We become cleansed, purified, single-minded. I want to show you something. 2010, I was preaching this passage. I was preaching 1 Peter to an audience, uh, 2010, and I said this, and I quote. I said this during that message. When the world goes bonkers over the latest dangerous virus, you will train yourself to wash your hands often, to use Purell many times a day. And yet, the bad list, talking about, about this list in 1 Peter, the bad list of our fleshly taint is truly epidemic. It's more dangerous than any pathogen. Surely it's worthy of discipline to purify your soul, close quote. The office of prophet is closed, and thus I'm not a prophet. But it doesn't take a prophet to know that epidemics always come and go and that people panic far more over physical cleanliness than they do over what matters most, purification in our hearts. Purify your own soul. Number two, remember your birthright. Look again at verse 23. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable to the living and enduring Word of God. You have a birthright that is precious and perfect, born again in the very living Word of God. Never lose sight of that. Esau did. Esau had a great birthright. He had a certain promise of position and power, and yet he squandered it in an attempt to fill a felt need. Thank goodness we're never like that. Oh, but we are. When we look at pornography, what are we doing? We, we're, we're falsely filling a felt need in the worst possible way instead of living out who we are, born-again children of God. It's a lie. When, when, we, when we go all snotty, demanding to see the manager, I demand better service, what are we doing? We're filling a felt need of the moment with self-righteous indignation, which shows a lack of agape that comes out as malice. We are not living according to our birthright, the way we should. 
when we, we, um, when we drive impatiently, grumbling at all these slow-footed idiots on the highway in front of us, we falsely fill our felt need for speed. But it never achieves God's purpose because we have forgotten our birthright. When we, this is very popular in our age. When we demand that other people bow down to our pain, we've forgotten the word into which we're born. We, we, we warp Scripture. We cry foul. If anyone doesn't acknowledge our felt need, our pain, as the most important thing in the world, we regularly lose sight of the fact that, listen, to be recognized on earth is not our birthright. We are promised far, far more than that. And, of course, this is especially targeted in Peter to our relationships in the fellowship. With other Christians, we must remember our birthright. We have position and power in Jesus, position and power that must not be squandered over interpersonal problems. All God's people said, how can I live up to verse 22? Purify my soul, remember my birthright, and number three, fight against our common enemies. Chapter 2, verse 1 lists them, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. How can I fight these? Let's take malice. How can I fight malice? The Greeks knew. Homer's word kakia was an absence of something. What was an absence of? Agathos, moral excellence. Do you want to defeat your hatred? It's really not that hard. Stop focusing on the wrong done to you by that other person. I, I know, their sin may be truly despicable, but that is not the way to fight kakia. Instead, inject agathos into your soul. Pay attention to your own lack of moral excellence. Focus on your need for agape love. That's how you fight malice. You fill the absence. How about deceit? How does one battle the tendency to lie? Remember, Peter is addressing Christians' under pressure. I don't know about you, but, but for me, when I'm under pressure, when I'm in pain, that's when I'm most likely to be deceitful, right? When, when Congress subpoenas you to appear, when, you, when the boss appears and screams at you about error, when mom calls you in on the carpet, under that pressure, what do we do? We very often lie, right? We deceive. God says, get rid of all deceit, even those lies that we pretend are beneficial, I want to introduce you to a guy who understood how to do this. His name's Carlo Lorenzi. Carlo Lorenzi, 19th century fellow. He, um, he, he was really a very bright thinker. He went to seminary, decided he really didn't want a pastor. Um, he became a soldier. His country was trying to unify and fight for their independence. They did so successfully. It was really amazing, and he fought in that effort. And then, because he fought in that effort so well, he was given a job in the new government. He worked, this may be my favorite thing about this guy, he worked in their censorship department, okay? But he didn't like what they did with their censorship, so he secretly kept publishing essays because he knew how to get around censorship that criticized the government. It was really fascinating. What a guy. He took all this learning, and late in his life, Carlo Lorenzi put everything that he had learned in his life into one story. It's ostensibly a children's story, but he really meant it for adults. He called it La Aventura de Pinocchio, The Adventures of Pinocchio. If you've ever read the book or if you've seen the Disney adaptation, raise your hand. Okay, how does, Carlo Lorenzi, is, he could think, how does Pinocchio finally get over a lifetime of deceit? Embarrassment doesn't do it, nothing does it until he finally owns up and confesses it, Right? When he finally says, I lied. I, I've had to do this a few times. 
And I have found that this is the only thing that works, at least for me, is the only thing that works in battling deceit. I have to tuck my donkey tail between my legs. I have to go to someone and say, I, I misled you yesterday. I, I lied to you because I was trying to make myself look better. I've had to do that a few times with our elders, and it is mortifying in a very positive sense. Facing up to lies, you know what it does when you face up to your lie. It takes that sin captive, and it makes you much less likely to deceive again. This is what we have to do with every one of these enemies. To battle hypocrisy, be honest about your own failings. Stop excusing your sin. How do you defeat envy? This is very simple. You know how you defeat envy? Give thanks all the time for everything. One of the Apostle Paul's favorite themes. Covetousness cannot survive in an atmosphere of gratitude. It can't. Uh, Slander is conquered by praying for the slanderer. I know you're going to pray about them first, sure. You're going to pray about them a lot. But if you, I promise, if you stick with it and keep praying about that person, it always inevitably morphs to where you actually are praying for them. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me this reminder. This goes a long way toward battling all these common enemies. David wrote me and said, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say, paraphrasing, whatever you may think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, remember, this is a person in whom the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell. It will change your attitude. And David added, I testify that it certainly does. Now, look again at 2.2. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the Word. As I put it in our notes, we need to, we need to feast at the same table. You may grow is one word in the Greek, and it's plural. So this is discussing the fellowship, the local church as a group. Peter's referring to eating up Scripture, but physical food doesn't hurt either. We're to grow up into what should be by living together, learning together, studying Scripture together. We feast at the same table. By the way, don't confuse milk here with something weak or juvenile. I, I know that is how that image is used in the book of Hebrews, but not here. Here, milk is a positive picture. The pure milk of Scripture is what we, we born-again kids need. Milk, it does a church body good, right? When we, when we feast at the same table, do you know what happens? When we're all studying the Scripture and being changed by it, we, we spur each other on. We experience redeemed community, and that goes a long way toward moving what is closer to what should be. Here's an example. Recent service here, uh, a fellow came up to me which is one of the great joys of my life. I got to meet a new person and talk with him. Uh, this guy was a black man, and he came up and he, he said this. He said, I'm from New York City. He said, I love it here. Everything was so focused on Scripture, there wasn't room for any divisions. And, and then he said this. He said, you know, I expected to see only whites here, which would be understandable. He said, but this church has a really broad ethnic makeup, doesn't it? And then he asked me, he said, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because you're an American Indian? Uh, he obviously had research. He knew me well enough that even though I don't look it, he knew I'm Choctaw. So uh, great question. I really enjoyed talking to this guy. He, uh, he spoke almost as rapidly as I do. I really enjoyed him. And um, we had a great long talk. And I answered his question uh, this way. When we got back around to it, I said, hey, back to your question about why the makeup of the church. Here's what I said. I said, I feel the reason we enjoy such diversity is because we don't worry about it. You actually said the key yourself. Everything is so focused on Scripture, there isn't room for division. Close quote. As Peter says, we long for the pure milk of the Word. That's what draws us together. 
How can I move from what is to what should be? By God the Spirit, I purify my soul. I remember my birthright as a Christian with my brethren. We fight our common enemies. We take in Scripture together. Fifth thing, grow up. We grow up in our salvation. Go back, go back to verse 2, uh, verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. That quote is from Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Now, in Peter's Greek rendering, he uses an if here, which in English makes it sound like maybe. Maybe this is so. That, that's not the way this works. This is a first-class condition in the Greek. Koine Greek had four class conditions for the word if, and some other transitional words too. Uh, it, it, we don't have to go through all of them today. Just understand a first-class condition is describing something that is true and is assumed to be present. Uh, we in English use the word since in, in, in this way, right? The Greeks used if, but they placed it in a construction that makes it clear that this is assumed. The idea is since you Christians have tasted, you have seen that God is good, that He is kind and gracious and noble and mighty and wonderful, since you have tasted that, now emulate it. It's time for you to grow up in it, to become like that. The, the Apostle Paul gave a very similar command in his letter to Philippi. Read with me. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, join me on the underlined part. If then, by the way, every if in this text is also a first-class condition, assumed to be true. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete. How, how do we make the Apostle's joy complete? By thinking in the same way. Having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. When you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, it works miracles on your old nature if you will just Stop and think about it. It is the most wonderful thing in the world to watch people grow up in Jesus. This, this is the best part of what I get to do. I, I have seen the meanest people become kind. I, I have seen the most ingrained curmudgeon become a blessing. All because these people realize what God has done for them and they decide to grow up in Jesus. They decide to partner with the Holy Spirit in moving from what is to what should be. We're going to close with another story time. Um, this is a story from Paul David Tripp from his, uh, his devotional, New Morning Mercies. This was sent to me by my friend Jeff Miller. Uh, Paul David Tripp says this, We all tend to share in a big, bad personal problem. It's one that doesn't get much press or pulpit time, yet this problem is a huge interrupter of our personal spiritual development growing up. Right? If you have this problem... You won't be concerned that you have this problem precisely because you have this problem. I confess this is a big deal for me as well. The problem is personal, spiritual self-satisfaction. The more I travel from church to church, the more I engage with leaders, the more I have opportunities to interview people in the seats, the more I grow convinced that the true crisis in the modern evangelical church is not dissatisfaction, it's the opposite. We're all too satisfied. We're all too satisfied with who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. We're satisfied with a little bit of biblical literacy. 
We're satisfied with occasional moments of ministry. We're satisfied with manageable debt that allows us to put a few coins in the plate. We're satisfied that we've been married for a while and it doesn't look as if we'll break up soon. We're satisfied with a bit of our theology in grasping the scriptures. We're satisfied that we can harness a good bit of our fear of man. We're satisfied to use most of our material resources to make and keep ourselves comfortable. We're satisfied to be mere consumers of the church rather than committed participants in it. We're satisfied with hearts that occasionally wander and thoughts that contradict what the Bible says is good and true. We give all evidence that we still need to grow But we're satisfied. And because we're satisfied, we are resistant to the grace that is our only hope. If you're able to convince yourself that you're healthy, even though there may be indicators that you're not, you're probably not going to the doctor to ask for his diagnostic and curative skill. But here's what you and I need to remember. We serve a dissatisfied Redeemer. He knows we still need the transforming work of His powerful grace. Isn't it wonderful that in gracious dissatisfaction, Jesus will not relent until every microbe of sin is removed from every cell of every one of the hearts of his children. All God's people said, amen. He is right. God loves you and me so much that he will not rest until we grow up in our salvation. Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that I will will grow up and put out the effort to continue growing up. I pray that that I will take in Scripture with my brethren, really take it in, that that we will together fight our common enemies. Oh, Lord, help me, help, help each of us to remember our birthright. Oh, my goodness, we settle for things we want on earth. (laughs) So paltry compared to what you have promised us in Jesus. By God the Spirit, please purify my soul. I confess that it it has a lot of jungle mud. And I pray that by your grace I will soar like an eagle. I pray this for every one of us, wherever, wherever my friends are around the world, I pray that you bless each and every one. That we will, that we will grow up and express that in love. In Jesus' name, amen.